Starting with verse 1, verses uh, 1 through 11 is what we'll be reading, Luke chapter 6. Now it happened on the second Sabbath, after the first, that he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man whose right hand was withered, and a man sat, a man who, uh, and a man was there. I'm sorry, whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. Their thoughts weren't in the right place during church, so you can tell there, right? But he knew their thoughts, and said to the man with the withered hand, "Arise and stand here." And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, "I will ask you one thing." Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and the hand was restored as whole as the other, but they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Father, we ask again, the presence of your Holy Spirit, your blessed Holy Spirit, Lord, would open every ear, every heart, every eye. Lord, we pray that this would not be any teaching from me, but only, Lord, that which would come from your throne. Lord, we desire to be like our Savior, to be gracious, merciful, compassionate. And Lord, we do not want to be like those that accused our Lord. So we pray, Lord, that you would be merciful to us this morning, open our eyes, that we would see Jesus and you alone. In your name we pray, amen. A man sat through a church service, and then on the way home, he complained about the sermon. He complained about the traffic. He complained about the heat. You don't have to worry about that today. And he complained about the lateness of the meal being served. Then he bowed to pray over the food. His son was watching him all the way through this post-church exercise. Just as they were beginning to pass the food, he said, Daddy, did God hear you when we left church and you started in on the sermon and the traffic and the heat? The father sort of blushed and said, "Uh, well, yes, son, he he heard me. Well, daddy, did God hear you when you just prayed over the food right now? The father said, well, well, yes, yes, son, he he heard me. So, well, daddy, which one did God believe? (laughs) Out of the mouth of children, huh? Our kids notice a lot of things, parents. And not just the kids, your coworkers notice a lot of things. Your neighbors will notice a lot of things. People around you will notice what really you're all about. Yeah, we can have a religious exterior. We can have something that we profess to be. But our lives will betray us oftentimes. Now, had this man's wife asked this question, he probably would have defended himself another hour, right? Well, it wasn't really a complaint. It was this, it was that. God is not the least bit impressed with our outward expression of religion. Amen? He's not the least bit impressed with anyone's outward expression. Expression 
of religion. You see, it's what comes out of the heart and out of the mouth that is truly revealing. It's the contorting of the face so strategically timed. The carefully crafted accusation. The silent treatment. The complaint that is offered as an observation. It's that not-so-subtle attitude. It's the tongue-in-cheek statement. It's the gossip disguised as a prayer request. It's the unmistakable body language. It's the backhanded compliment. It's the shaking of the head. These are the familiar weapons of hypocrisy, character assassination, and self-promotion. The Pharisees were experts at all of these and many more, weren't they? Now, it's, you could be tempted to just look at the Pharisees and say, yeah, those guys. But we'd be wise to remember that those guys are our guy, us guys sometimes as well. Be careful, Christian. Are we walking humbly in love and in grace? Or are we seeking to be justified by our own self-approved performance? The Pharisees, they were, nine out of ten Pharisees approved of their own performance. As far as they were concerned, it's all of you. But they had it together. They had it right. As we see from the text, the pride of religious achievement will often find some well-defined targets to condemn and expose. Looking for someone to zero in on to say, aha, that's the group right there. Those are the ones that don't know God. Those are the ones that don't worship God like we do. Those are the ones that do not love God like we do. Ironically, and this is certainly the case here in Luke chapter 6, the targets of the criticism are very often approved by God, while the accusers are in direct opposition of God. And here's the kicker. They don't even know it. They have no idea that they're opposed to God. The people they're accusing actually not because of their perfection, but because of God's grace, are approved by God. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8, remember the first time I read this passage after being saved, back in 1995, I remember this verse always stuck with me. It still does today, and I hope it always does. Jesus said this in Matthew 15, 8, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Do you realize how many people name the name of God? This is what Jesus said. A lot of people. And he was speaking of the religious elite of his day. But this would apply to many. Yes, their lips say God's name. Yes, their bumper sticker says God's name. Yes, the stack of Bibles they own on the shelves all of the things, but the heart can still be far from God, can it? Religiosity. He said in John 4.23, another passage that I love, I'm sure many of you do as well, I love this verse, the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. He spoke that to a woman who had been married multiple times. She was on the low end of religious leaders' estimation. Jesus said, I'm looking for the ones that really want to worship the Father in truth and in the Spirit, not according to the letter of of performing in front of man, but those that truly want to worship 
the Lord. You see, endeavoring to guard and defend the Sabbath and their sterling reputations, the Pharisees have completely missed the opportunity to actually worship and serve the very God who gave the Sabbath. And their whole desire to protect what they did not create and they had received under Moses, they're missing the God of Moses. They're totally missing the Lord that gave the Sabbath. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, Lord of the Sabbath. It's kind of hard to improve on the title that Jesus gives himself. There in verse 5, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. And I We'll look at three things in the text this morning. Condemnation, correction, and compassion. Condemnation, correction, and compassion. Thank goodness for water. It's been a... I'm feeling better, but my throat still... Well, it's still trying to get... It's trying to get caught up with the rest of the body there. Condemnation. Well, what took place here in the first uh, few verses... Uh, As it says, now it happened on the second Sabbath, at first he went through the grain fields. So Jesus is leading his disciples. Uh, They go where he goes. Uh, The Lord lays on his heart where the next area of ministry will take place. And they're passing through on the Sabbath, the second Sabbath after the first, likely the second Sabbath in that particular month. Uh, It's getting near harvest time, so uh, the grain is is budded there, and uh, soon those things will be will be completely harvested, but you can uh, see from the text that they're still standing as stalks of grain at this time, and the disciples are walking through, and it's a Sabbath day, which would be the seventh day. Now, we're meeting today on the first day of the week, but they would meet on the seventh day of the week according to the law of Moses, and they were hungry. Anyone ever been hungry on the Lord's Day? Of course, and they were hungry, and so... They decided to just take a handful. And uh, this isn't the most incredibly delicious meal they would ever eat, by the way. How many of you are looking forward to having that for lunch today? Just, a few, just, just grab a few stalks of the, of the grain and rub it in your hand so you can get the hull off and you're just left with the grain, the meat of the grain, and uh, that, that's it. There's no honey on it. It doesn't taste like a granola bar. You know, it's more like the Quaker oats, just dump them out and eat them dry. Delicious. (laughs) Now, they're not dried out, so they would have a little bit of moisture, so at least it goes down a little bit easier. But, But this was the great meal that God had provided for them. And this is what they did. They just kind of tuck, rubbed them together. But as they were eating this um, seven-course meal... I'm kidding. As they were eating just what little bit God had provided, and they were very thankful for it, the Pharisees took note. Ah, that looks like work. That looks a lot like work. That's threshing and reaping there. They're reaping and now threshing it. And so they begin to accuse what... Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? You guys would be better off starving today and not eating because you can't work, and you're working. We, on the other hand, we don't violate the Sabbath. We keep the law to perfection. Now, the Pharisees, they have a fundamental problem. Well, they have a lot of fundamental problems. But... One in particular, and the biggest one is, they don't believe Jesus. So if you don't believe Jesus, you're at an impasse on everything that Jesus does, correct? They simply don't believe in him. They don't believe what he says. They don't believe who he says he is. They don't believe in his ministry. They don't believe what he teaches. If you don't believe in the witness of Christ, you will by nature doubt everything he says and does. 
It's axiomatic. If you do not believe in him, you won't have any respect for anything he says or does. And they already have rejected the witness of Christ. They criticized everything Jesus did. This was not the only criticism. They criticized whatever he did. Now, Jesus was aware of that. And by the way, Christian, if you choose to follow Christ, and I presume each of you have, guess what? A servant's not above his master. You too will be criticized at times because if they criticize Jesus, they'll criticize you. I've seen people get so discouraged in ministry. And I'm not just talking about people that are in full-time ministry, missionaries, pastors, evangelists. I've seen people get discouraged that teach a Sunday school class because someone in a mean spirit criticized them and questioned, well, you didn't take any time to do this or thought. It's just, it's just heartbreaking to see because you, you might know that that person spent a lot of time preparing. And they really poured their heart into it. And it takes one sharp-tongued individual to tear them down. But remember, it happened to Jesus. It'll happen to you too. And so you have to say, Lord, you're the one that I work for. You're the one that I serve. Amen? The disciples, they were going to hear these kind of criticisms because it was preparing them for future ministry. The criticisms will never go away. As long as there's people, there will always be pharisaical criticisms. And if they were levied against Jesus, you can be sure they'll be levied against his followers as well. Now Jesus, unlike us, you and I, some of our criticisms are deserved because we are imperfect. We do mess up. Is anyone here messed up this week? Well, at least a couple of you did. The rest of you, another perfect week. You're doing great. The first quarter of the year is over tomorrow. So the rest of you have done great. You've already made it through one quarter of the year. Perfection. Great. You've got three more quarters left. But we, we really do make mistakes. We really do have flub-ups. We really do sometimes inadvertently break one of God's commandments. We do. And sometimes criticism is merited. I wouldn't say it's always worthy because God should guide how we interact with one another, and it's not to slice each other up. It's to encourage one another. Encourage one another. But Jesus, he was born under the law. Remember we talked about that John the Baptist, he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And then he points, the, he points the way to Jesus. He was the forerunner to Christ, but he was the last of the Old Testament prophets under the spirit of Elijah. And then comes Christ, God's only begotten son, the Messiah. And Jesus would usher in the age of grace, the new covenant, he would bring salvation that the blood of bulls and goats could never bring. He would be perfection. But he was not, he was not after the law. Jesus comes under the law. He's born under the law. He's circumcised on what? The eighth day, exactly as the law prescribed. Jesus did every single thing according to the law. He kept the law and kept it to its perfection. Not just the Ten Commandments either. All the law of Moses. He never broke a single law that was given in the Torah. Not a, not a one. Now tradition and the Talmud writings hold that there were a total of 613 laws within the Torah. That's a lot of laws, isn't it? 613. That's what the tradition and the, the Torah uh, states. Now there's rabbinical scholars, I'll, I'll say this as well, there are rabbinical scholars and theologians who take issue with that number. And, and again, this is what some of the rabbinical writings, uh, that one particular rabbi is the one that actually came up and calculated and counted every law he could find and found 613. But so even to this day, you'll hear many pastors, theologians re reference 613. There are Theologians and scholars that take issue with that say that there was actually less. 
regardless of how you want to count them, if you think that that rabbi double-counted a few of them, if you've ever read the first five books of the Bible, just go read Leviticus, and you'll find there's a lot more than ten. There's a lot of them, isn't there? And they govern every aspect of Jewish society. There were many detailed laws, and they were all given to govern. Here why, here why the law was given. Whether it was 613 or 500 or 492, or all the Jesus said, all the law and the commandments hang on what? Two, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Why is that important? Because neighbors can hurt neighbors. Neighbors can steal from neighbors. Neighbors can step on each other's toes. Neighbors can be calloused and cold at times and not really care. But we also can forget that we were created to worship God and God alone. So all the laws were given to do two primary things. Number one, to protect society and to govern society. I put them under one category. To protect and guide society. How many of you are glad that when the red light hits red, that people actually stop rather than T-boning you as you're going through, the, uh, going through the four-way intersection. When people don't stop, people get really hurt. Right? So governing and protecting society, laws are important. And God gave the laws to govern and protect society. But number two, he gave the laws to protect the sanctity of worshiping God. That... that Israel would never forget that they had been set apart to worship the true and living God, not to fall away into idolatry, but to worship the true and living God. So all the laws would actually give protection to society, but also keep their eyes on the Lord. God was always trying to keep their eyes on him, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night always reminding them, put the tabernacle in the dead center of the camp. All of these things were always to remind the children of Israel, look to God, look to God, look to God, the one that parted the Red Sea, the one that saves you, the one that redeems you, the one that is gracious and compassionate. Look to the Lord. This is the thing that the Lord was always doing with this nation, protection, but also that they would continue to worship. Now, Paul would later say something else that the law was doing that not everyone realized. I'm sure that it did come to the realization of some of the Old Testament uh, saints. But Paul would later uh, write it in Galatians 3.24. He says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now, there's another thing that the law does the law teaches us we can't actually keep this thing. That's the other thing. That's the kind of behind the scenes. Paul said this should be the obvious one. Yes, it's to protect you in society. Yes, it's to govern and give order. Yes, it's to focus you on God. But oh, by the way, it also tells you something else you really need to understand. You actually can't keep it. Why would God give us something we can't actually keep? You can't keep it. Because we would end up having to look to the one who kept it. Jesus. He's the only one. I love in Acts 15, 10 through 11, you know, when they had, uh, the Judaizers had uh, gone up to Antioch and they were, they were trying to put the believers there back under the law of Moses and they had to follow the law to be saved. And matter of fact, they told them, unless you were circumcised, you can't be saved, period. You cannot be saved if you're uncircumcised. And no one had really confronted this yet and the Holy Spirit then speaks to the apostles and they are told, no, this is no longer required. But they said, speaking of the law, they said, which neither our fathers, and these are the apostles speaking, nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. The apostles came to the realization to say, hey, all of our fathers, Moses didn't keep it, 
David didn't keep it, Elijah didn't keep it, and we can't keep it. But we'll all be saved by grace. And so the law, this other aspect, our tutor. But the law was not a tutor for Jesus. Amen? The law was never Jesus' tutor. Jesus doesn't need a tutor. He's sinless. The law never taught Jesus that he couldn't keep the law because he actually did keep it. It wasn't a heavy burden for Jesus. It's a heavy burden for us, but it wasn't a heavy burden for Jesus. To walk with Jesus, as the apostles and disciples did, and to watch Jesus would be to watch the only person in the history of the world to perfectly keep the commandments. No one else, not the high priest, not the rabbis, not the Levites, not the Kohanim, nobody else had ever kept the law until this man walked planet earth. It wasn't his tutor. He was the one doing the teaching. Amen? That's why his name means rabbi or teacher. It's one of his names. He kept it to perfection, every jot and tittle. But not only did he keep the law, but he didn't just keep the law. He did it with love and compassion. See, sometimes someone can keep the law in a specific area, and they can still be mean as a snake. True? They can still keep the law in a specific little area. Check, box, done, and they can still be someone that is about ready to let loose on the next person that violates their space. But that wasn't Jesus. He kept it and he was loving and compassionate. And that was strikingly different than what most people have seen of the men who were the law keepers, the resident police of the law. They weren't used to seeing, the apostles weren't used to seeing uh, someone that actually kept it, but also was gracious and kind and always looking to lift people up, not push them back down. The Pharisees, though, they were unfazed by what they saw in Jesus. There were a dichotomy, and this is, this, is the, this is always the truth with self-deception. On the one hand, I think they completely noticed Jesus kept it perfect. On the other hand, they would lie to themselves and say he didn't. I can't get there, but I can exp- I, I've seen it. You know where I've seen it? In myself at times. How about you? Right? We say one thing and we do another. I know they could see Jesus was perfect. Nicodemus made that clear when he came in the night. He's like, no man can do these things unless he comes from God. And yet, at the other hand, they would actually shut out their own ability to see it and say, we reject what we can see and know he's a lawbreaker. They were unfazed. These men not only thought they were the supreme keepers of the law, but they were always on the lookout to condemn even the slightest infraction in others. Even the slightest infraction, they were ready to pounce on it. The word condemn means to express strong disapproval of, to pronounce judicial sentence on. And they were. They were pronouncing sentence. These men are guilty of working on the Sabbath. Yes, they grabbed the grain, threshed it, reaped it, worked when it's clear that there should be no work on the Sabbath. Isn't it always easy to see everyone else's sins and issues? Isn't that always easy, to see everybody else's? And if we think we've mastered something, oh, look out. If we think we've mastered it, you know the saying, to a hammer, everything else becomes a nail. It's true. The dispute, by the way, was not over that these guys had taken grain from a field that didn't belong to them. No, 
that was actually allowed by the law. The Pharisees knew it. In Deuteronomy 23, 25, it says, When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Uh, the verse previous to it, though, is really fascinating. Uh, I'll, I'll read, you don't have to turn there, but I'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23. The previous verse, though, so they were allowed to take grain, someone, if you owned a grain field, and I was hungry and was walking by your grain field, I, under the law, legally could grab a handful, more than one, I could grab several. I couldn't grab a sickle and start to harvest your field, but just because God was always compassionate to those that were poor, just like when it, after it was harvested, they could actually glean what was left laying on the ground as well. But while it was still up in its stalk, a person could come by and grab. There was not a dispute among that. The dispute here was that they had worked and they had threshed or gleaned the hulls off, which they were citing as a form of work. Interestingly enough, had these guys instead grabbed a grape, they would have been okay. You can just pop a grape in. These Pharisees would have said, well done, you chose a good fruit. <laughs> if you would have stopped and washed the grape, now we've got another discussion. Because in the 24th verse of the same chapter, it says, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you should not put any in your container. You could just grab a few and eat them, but you couldn't go and say, I'm going to start putting them in a container and take home a whole bunch of grapes. But that would be okay because you didn't have to take the hull. You just take the grape, pop it in your mouth. By the way, uh, I didn't know this. When I was a child, I remember going to the grocery store. I think I thought this was legal too. <laughs> Did anyone else ever do that when they were a kid? You're like riding through the grocery store and your parents got you in the cart and your mom is over there looking at cucumbers and you're just grabbing grapes and just popping them in. Uh, now, I actually was violating the law back then and didn't know it, but um, in Israel they were allowed to do that. But the issue here, had they really worked for a meal? Now, they were with Jesus. If anyone should know how this whole thing works, he would know. He's not condemning them because this was not a form of work. The way that work was defined is, is you were actually getting paid for your labor or you were doing something that was actually knocking out a task. But grabbing a handful, whether you're eating a little bit of granola or whether you're cutting your child's piece of toast into two or whatever it is, those were not forms of work. That was just part of eating a meal. And deep down, I believe the Pharisees knew it, but they were looking for an offense, weren't they? Looking for an offense. You know, the Pharisees never mind that the Pharisees would have their most elaborate meal on the Sabbath. These guys were headed to or coming from a beautiful, lavish meal as they would always have on the Sabbath, and they were nitpicking these guys who were eating dry granola or just, just meat of grain off the stalks. These guys weren't going to have a, the disciples weren't going to have some fabulous meal. They were getting just what we would call sustenance. And they were looked down at for it. Jesus would say in Matthew 23, 24, he said, blind guides who strain out a gnat to swallow a camel. Indicting, isn't it? Jesus, thinking, Jesus is looking at, he's, he hasn't intervened yet. He's let them give their condemnation. He's observing them. He knows what they ate that day. He knows how much effort they put into it too, by the way. He knows everything that they did from the time they got up. And if they violated the law, he knows it. But he's looking at them as they're condemning his disciples. And by the way, they're not so much condemning the disciples. Who do you think they're really condemning? Jesus. Basically, they're saying, your rabbi is misleading you. That's what, he's, that's what they're saying. Your rabbi doesn't know the law. They're thinking, we're pretty sure our rabbi wrote the law. <laughs> we're pretty sure he is the law. But okay. We'll let Jesus take care of it. Jesus, you take it from here. 
And he does. Let's look at the correction. Jesus comes to the defense of his own disciples, and he says, and Jesus answered them. Boy, they hate when he starts with this. Have you not even read? If there's one thing they took great pride in, it was knowing the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Have you not even read? Do you guys... Let me get this straight. You guys are the ones that study the scrolls night and day, right? Correct. Have you not even read? They were condemning the rabbi. But he's going to now turn and give them some correction. By the way, they've tried to correct Jesus, doing it through the disciples, which is obvious. You, You don't pull that... And Jesus not understand what you're doing. He knows you're trying to correct him. But trying to correct and instruct Jesus on how the Sabbath works is like an astronomer trying to tell God how the universe works. Some astronomers would try and tell God how the universe works. You know, they might know a few facts, but they're way out of their element. And that assumes that the Pharisees' motives were pure, and of course their motives weren't pure. But Jesus, instead of doing this deep teaching on the seventh day, or Shabbat, as it's called in Hebrew, or the Sabbath, instead of doing a deep teaching on actually the Sabbath, he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, have you not read, and he refers to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. I'm not going to turn there, but what takes place there is David is hungry. And he goes to the priest there, and his men are hungry, and he asks if there's anything to eat. And the priest says, the only thing I have is holy bread. It's not common. I have the tape. I have the showbread. But that's only for the priesthood. And an exception is made that God allows for the priest to make the exception and David and his men to eat the showbread. And they do. And Jesus says, riddle me this. How is it that David, who's not a part of the priesthood, he's not a Levite, he's from the tribe of Judah, he's a king, not a priest, how is it that David was able to do something that was unlawful And yet, there's no condemnation of it from my father, and there's no condemnation of it in the scriptures. How does that work? And you can see uh, in verse 4, I believe there's probably a pause here as he gives them time to think about it. They don't have an answer. They just remain quiet. See, the Ten Commandments, there are ten laws. Nine of them are moral laws. One of them is ceremonial. The fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath, is a ceremonial law. The other commandments, by the way, the other commandments were all understood. uh, We can see that they, they were understood even before the Ten Commandments were ever given. For example, I'll give you one. There's There's numerous. But remember uh, Joseph, Uh, he ran into Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife tried to entice him to commit adultery. Now the Ten Commandments haven't been given, at least they haven't been codified, they haven't been written on tablets of stone, they weren't given to him. But Joseph immediately says what? How can I sin against the Lord? He knew it was a sin. The commandments were understood, the moral commandments were well understood. And then they were given at Sinai, Mount Sinai, all ten. But the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, this was something that God had given new to Israel. Now, it's true that God rested on the seventh day. That's true. But there's nowhere in the entire, from the time we see Genesis chapter 1 all the way till we see the law There is no Sabbath enforcement, not even mentioned. It gets mentioned 
when Israel comes out of Egypt and God gives it to the children of Israel. Matter of fact, he gives it to the children of Israel before he gives it to them before the law is given in Exodus chapter 20. You might recall that when the manna is given, that's when he tells them on the Sabbath, it will become a holy day for them on the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, they have to, or on the sixth day, actually, the sixth day, they would have to gather twice as much manna so they wouldn't gather it on what? The Sabbath. That, all, that actually takes place in Exodus 16. And then in this 20th chapter, that God gives them the Ten Commandments verbally, and then later they're given in the form of commandments. Uh, Turn with me real quick. I want to show you something in the text as well. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. This is um, God gives the law or the commandments, uh, gives the, he's already given uh, the Ten Commandments verbally, now he's giving Moses, this is the first set of tablets uh, that he's giving, but look at, uh, look at chapter 31, starting with verse 12, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak also to the children of Israel, saying, surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it shall be a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. Forever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to the Lord, whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall surely be put to death. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. See, it was actually a covenant relationship under the old covenant with Israel. This was the mark of Israel to the nations. All the nations were required to not lie. All the nations were required to not commit adultery. All the nations were required to not worship false gods. But Israel was given the covenant relationship of the Sabbath. This is the only commandment God actually mentions when he hands Moses the tablet. He doesn't actually mention the nine moral laws because Israel's entering into a ceremonial covenant with the Lord. Goes on to say, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Matter of fact, all the ceremonial aspects will actually come back to Israel in the millennium reign of Christ. We'll get there when we get the end of Ezekiel. You'll actually see animal sacrifices come back, which really should blow your mind because Jesus has already sacrificed himself for sin. So these are types and ceremonial pictures that God is doing with the nation of Israel. goes on to say, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, and the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, why, I, why we read that? Ten commandments are given, but God clearly identifies when he hands Moses the tablets, the only one he wants to talk to Moses about is the ceremonial fourth. He doesn't bring up any of the others. He only talks to Moses about the fourth. He says, this is my covenant with you and the children of Israel. You and me, this will be everyone. uh, One of the ancient wonders of Israel was that they had a sea that everything floated in, called the Dead Sea, a day which no men worked. And they had the temple with no idols in it. Those, the, all the nations, matter of fact, when kings would come there, they would remember those three things about ancient Israel. You have a sea, everything floats, no one works on the seventh day, and you have a temple, and there's no images in it. No graven images. And these things, this was a light to the nations to see. But what the Lord is showing through Jesus, as when they are accusing Jesus and his disciples of violating the Sabbath, Jesus doesn't even take them back to the Ten Commandments, does he? No, he takes them to 1 Samuel 21 and says a ceremonial thing, the priesthood, had elasticity that only God put in and only God can expand. 
The same is true with what I will do with the Sabbath and my purposes because the Lord is the one that governs the priesthood. The Lord's the one that governs David. The Lord's the one that governs the Sabbath and the fourth commandment. And the Lord's saying, in the things, Jesus is saying, in the things that my father laid down ceremonially, there's some latitude that he will exercise whenever he pleases. And you guys are going to have to understand that my father does not answer to you, and nor do I. David had broken the law, but yet in the ceremonial aspect, there's never a provision for David committing adultery, is there? No, that's not ceremonial. That is a moral violation. But even with the moral violations, all of us have lied. That's where grace comes in, amen? You actually need need grace over the ceremonial, and you need grace over the moral. You need them both. But thankfully, the ceremonial, God has other plans and purposes for them, which don't sometimes be, they're not sometimes revealed until a later date. Nobody would have ever, if you would have asked anyone in the priesthood, hey, would it ever be okay? Would it, I mean, would it ever, ever be okay for David to walk in and eat the showbread? Every single priest would say, absolutely not. You couldn't have found a single priest. You couldn't have found one priest who would say, sure, that's, is he hungry? Well, yeah, he's starving. Absolutely. No, that had to be provided by the Lord. But it was already built in. We see here that the 31st chapter, the fourth commandment was God's special call with Israel. Now there's a few other, there's a total, there's a few things happening here. We mentioned one, the ceremonial law had provisions. In essence, there was the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Make sense? The spirit of the law was being kept. The letter kills, the scripture tells us. The moral law, there is, no, there is no modification of moral law. Adultery will always be adultery. Murder will always be murder. Idolatry will always be idolatry. Rebellion to parents will always be rebellion to parents. Covetousness will always be covetousness. There's no elasticity with anything that's moral. The ceremonial. God's not looking. Now, by the way, Jesus didn't break any of these things again. He kept them for perfection. Born under the law, kept them perfect. The other thing is they don't know the scriptures like Jesus does, them being the Pharisees. He takes them to a passage that they never dreamed he would even use in defending their accusation. He's author and finisher of the whole council of of God. This also teaches us that when we need to understand anything the Bible from the Bible, we need to understand it from the whole counsel of God. Amen? Not in a vacuum. You can't take a verse out of context or it creates a pretext. They also would have made exceptions for David that they would not have made for men like his disciples. How many of you would agree with that? Yeah, David, they revered. Well, hey, when we give out free passes, and trust me, the Pharisees did, we give them out to the old boy network. David, he was at least the greatest king, so we'll give him a pass. Your guys, lowlifes. No pass for them. Jesus knew their hearts. And I think there's also something else Jesus is accused, and Luke records it twice here, and it's recorded in the other Gospels as well. Luke is, Luke is recording back-to-back that this Sabbath accusation is, is one of the things that they felt they were good at. And that's where they went after Jesus. We're good at keeping that. Now, keeping our minds clean, we're not so good at. Not telling lies, we're not so good at that. But there's one thing we got down pat. We got that seventh day down pat. We're good at that. We're not so good at the other stuff. But we're good at that. And I believe that also there's a foreshadowing 
for some of the allowances that would take place in the new covenant for the fourth commandment. Because remember, under Jesus, he's born under the law. There's been no change whatsoever to the Sabbath. Everyone is required to observe the Sabbath. Jesus is showing them that it hasn't been violated, but he's showing them that ceremonial aspects have been violated in the past under the grace of God and were allowable by God. This is why he went to 1 Samuel 21. He would say this, and uh, Matthew records the same, Matthew records the same um, interaction. And this is what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 12, verses 7 through 8. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. In other words, he said, my disciples are guiltless on this. They've not violated But had you known, I desire mercy and sacrifice, for the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, look, I created the Sabbath. I created its purposes for Israel. I created its purposes for the Old Covenant. I created its purposes in the New Covenant. And I've created what will take place related to to the millennium reign of Christ, and even beyond that, for all eternity. All eternity. Do you know that none of, the, none of the Bible will ever fade away in heaven? Even the verses, will there ever be a problem with sin in heaven? No. And yet, thou shalt not kill will still be in the Bible. Amen? There, that's not needed for anyone to see anymore for the law purpose But the word of God is settled forever in heaven. And Jesus is getting them ready for the new covenant. He started doing that in the previous chapter. Remember in chapter 5, he's talking about the old wineskins and the new wineskins. He's starting to lay the groundwork to say, if you think you're offended now, wait till I rise from the dead. That's part of what he's getting at. If you're offended now, wait till my apostles start teaching the new covenant. You will grab stones and stone Stephen. You're going to be out of your mind. Because if you think this is bad, wait till you see that I will actually allow people to worship me on a day that's not the Sabbath. (gasps) No. But that's coming. Are we under the law of the Sabbath today? No, we are not. Jesus fulfilled all the law's requirements. Aren't you glad he did? We haven't gone an hour without messing up somewhere in our life, and he fulfilled all the law's requirements. We're under the new covenant. We're under grace. We're under the blood of Jesus. We would not know this and even be able to declare it unless the scriptures proclaim this, and they do. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6 says this. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. You and I can never alter the Scriptures. Amen? We can't add a single thing to it. But we must receive all that it says. Amen? Who wrote the Old Testament? The prophets of God. God, holy men of God, were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they wrote, Moses was not any different than you and I. If you cut him, he would bleed. He was a man God chose to write the first five books of the Bible. He chose men like David, Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They were men just like you and I. They were prophets of God that wrote what the Holy Spirit told them to write. Now, who wrote the New Testament? Same exact thing. The apostles and prophets and authors of God in the New Testament They were given the exact same, so then the Lord said, now I want you to write. Neither are more important than the other. The only one who can add to God's word is, guess who? God. And he did. After Jesus rose from the dead, sends into heaven, the giving of Pentecost, which by the way takes place on the first day of the week, just like the resurrection did. One of the reasons why we as believers... Uh, love to serve and worship the Lord on the first day of the week is because both the resurrection and Pentecost took place on the first day of the week. 
uh, the first fruits of Christ risen were on the first day of the week. That's why John refers to it as the Lord's Day. Uh, but nevertheless, in the New Covenant, Jesus, after he's risen from the dead, gives the writing of the New Covenant, the teachings of grace, the teaching of the New Covenant, are primarily given to the New Testament prophets. The same way Elijah and Moses wrote the Old Testament, the New Testament prophets write the New Testament. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Paul writes this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Isn't that great? Rather than, we can't get our righteousness from the law. We don't. We get our righteousness through Christ. The Sabbath commandment is not re-mentioned by Jesus even once in his ministry. It's not even re-mentioned once in the entire New Testament. Not a single time. Not once is the Sabbath. You will not find a verse anywhere in the New Testament that says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. It's not in any of the sin lists. And there's a lot of sin lists that the, that the writers of the New Testament write. They will write different sins of, you'll never see Sabbath breaking in the list. It's not in the list. The Scriptures are very clear that our perfection is in Christ. It's not in a ceremonial aspect of the law. The ceremonial aspects, washing of hands, circumcision, Sabbath keeping, new moons, festivals, all those things cannot and do not give you any righteousness whatsoever, only the righteousness in Christ. In much the same way that Christ corrected the Pharisees here, the Holy Spirit, speaking through the New Testament authors and apostles, corrected the early church that tried to impose the law. Do you realize the same thing would happen all over again after Jesus is resurrected? But then it would be the new Christians on... Paul was actually, there's uh, uh, historical writings that actually indicate that Paul was accused of being apostate even because he wrote that it was okay for New Testament believers, particularly Gentiles, to worship the Lord on the first day of the week or on the second day of the week or on the third day of the week or on the fourth day of the week instead of the seventh day as was given to Israel. Now, by the way, my good friends that are messianic pastors that love to worship on the Sabbath, Sam Nadler will be here in July. Uh, his church meets on the Sabbath. My good friend uh, uh, Dr. Hertz down in Hampton, they meet on the Sabbath or the seventh day. The first day of the week does not replace the Sabbath. The first day of the week is the first day of the week. The seventh day of the week it remains the seventh day of the week. Both have their purposes. Both have a beauty that the Scripture uh, very clearly uh, portrays, and both have their um, fulfillment, both now and even future fulfillment. But uh, my brothers and sisters that worship in Messianic fellowships on the Sabbath, the Sabbath, it's a blessing for them. It's a testimony to the unsaved Jews. For the same reason my good friend Sam will not eat shellfish, and he will not eat pork. Not that he can't, but he knows that it can cause offense. So he chooses not to, that he might win more to Christ. Paul, the Apostle Paul himself talked about this. But in the Scripture of the New Testament, I just want to make this, uh, you know, a couple other things here clear, and then we'll, uh, we'll close up with this last point of compassion. You know, in the 15th chapter, or the, uh, in the 14th chapter of Acts, uh, Paul's, I'm sorry, of Romans, in the 14th chapter of Romans, Paul talks about the liberty we have in Christ. And he mentions, um, he says, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike, that each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe. That's Romans chapter 14. Uh, he mentions in Galatians 4, Galatians chapter 4, uh, the Galatians had actually tried to return to the law, and Paul said this. He said, but now you have known God, or rather are known by God. How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Days. This is talking about uh, the Sabbath. He says the same thing 
in Colossians chapter 2, because this was something that continually uh, they would deal with, with the New Testament church, that those who had um, come out of Judaism were telling the Gentiles, you can't be saved if you're not going to keep the Sabbath, if you're not going to be circumcised, if you're not going to follow the dietary laws, uh, you can't be saved. And then the apostle said, no, time out. That's not the case under the new covenant here. Colossians chapter 2, another passage that uh, is great news for us. Uh, Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Verse 16, so let no one judge you in regard of food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths. Clear as a bell, and there's many other things that the Lord has to say on this. Now, what's interesting is Jesus, again, was laying the foundation when he talked about the new wineskins and the old wineskins. When he disrupts their apple cart by going to 1 Samuel chapter 21, speaking of the ceremonial aspects, and the, 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 I believe also kind of pointing to some of the changes that would be coming or some of the allowances that would be coming. Uh, in Acts chapter 15, when the men were told they must be circumcised, do you realize that there wasn't a single verse in the Bible that would ever have taken away circumcision? The first time we know that men don't have to be circumcised is because the Holy Spirit told the apostles at that very time and place. There was no Old Testament verse that they could have pointed to that would have said, you don't have to be circumcised. Everything in the Old Testament would have said, yes, you do have to be circumcised. The Holy Spirit said, no, they don't. Now write it down. This is thy new covenant, write it down. And then the same would be true when Paul would actually meet Gentiles and say, hey, can we meet on the first day of the week? And Paul said, absolutely. There was no verse that validated that. The verses were the new verses of the new covenant that would provide the grace that you and I have in the Lord. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, isn't he? He's the Lord of circumcision. He's the Lord of the dietary laws. He's the Lord of the old covenant. He's the Lord of the new covenant. He is the Lord of all, isn't he? Coming to a close, look at this last um, uh, interaction here on the Sabbath. They're looking at him on a different Sabbath. Is he going to heal this guy? Is he going to violate the Sabbath yet again? In Matthew, he speaks about the same thing. Would you not have compassion on your own little lamb if it was stuck? Would you not help out your own animal, which was provided under the law? They could do that. Now, here I am. I see a man who's listening to my teaching, and he actually believes what I'm teaching. You guys are listening to my teaching and don't believe what I'm teaching. He's got a withered arm and he needs healing and he's not even asking me to be healed and you're having a problem in your mind. You're not talking about it, but I'm reading your thoughts again, which has to further bother them. Once again, he's reading their minds. He said, I've read your thoughts and I, I perceive you don't want me to heal this guy because you've actually come here for the express purpose to see if I do, you're going to call it out. But guess what? This man came because he desires to know me, and I desire to heal him. And those of us that really desire to know Jesus have a desire to see Jesus heal other people. And that's a bigger concern for us than winning debates and arguments and putting ourselves on pedestals. We should have the same compassion for the lost and the dying and the diseased. This is the compassion. Jesus said, it's mercy that I desire you to have. It's grace. It's compassion. Where you are, These guys were so unloving that they were mad that Jesus healed the man, that they, they were enraged. What They were filled with rage. And they thought they were holy. They thought they were righteous. 
Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have not love, everything else profits me nothing. There are so many that have a list of rules and do's and don'ts. They don't have any of the love of Christ flowing through their spirit and it's profit them nothing. You and I, everything we do is going to be wood, hay, and stubble if it's not done with love. Amen? Jesus loved the disciples. He even loved the Pharisees who didn't love him back. He had mercy. He had compassion. His desire was that he said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was made that men would actually draw near to the Lord. And the Sabbath rest that is in Christ which is greater than the Sabbath because the Lord of the Sabbath is greater than the Sabbath. And that we were made to be in worship with the Lord and that His love and compassion would be manifested in us too. Amen? Not that we would be Pharisees. Let's close in prayer.